um, universities are full of thousands of students from across the world who are young, who are interested in finding out things that they don't know. They're starting out in um, their educational experience, they're meeting new people, they're interested in talking to you. And it's a fantastic then mission field to actually reach out to students with the gospel. And I'm thankful that there are people that do devote considerable efforts to do that. Uh, there's an organisation known as Agape that works in Europe and various European universities, and they work on campuses to spread the gospel. In the United States, they're known as Campus Crusade for Christ. They've recently rebranded as Crew, and they've been around for a long time spreading the gospel to students. And in Europe, they're known as Agape. Um, there's various other organisations that are similar, that have got similar aims to reach students with the gospel. But there's a group of at least four of them in the Northeast, and there's Jack and his wife Kristen, and Johnny and his wife Miriam, and they work together on campuses in the Northeast sharing the gospel with students. And one of the things that I help them out with is on Wednesday evenings we meet together for a meal with students. I know that Friends International does something similar, I know that Judith's involved with that, uh, and that's across at Jesmond Parish Church. But on campus at Northumbria, we use a church hall, uh, St James's URC, it's on campus at Northumbria University, so we have the church hall there on Wednesday nights. We meet together, we have a meal with the students, that's all provided free of charge. And then somebody gives a short talk, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's somebody else, and it's usually just a discussion point. We'll talk about something interesting, we'll talk about, you know, I'll talk about something that I've been studying in psychology, and the aim is to get a lot of conversations going. And there'll be a set of questions on the tables where the students get together, and they discuss the questions and the aim is to eventually to try and get to something where um, the Christians on the table get to share their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that then provides a nice real opportunity to talk to students, sometimes from backgrounds where they know little or nothing about the gospel, and to tell them about the Lord Jesus. Uh, if students show interest then, then we make it a point then of trying to meet with those students to read the Bible together uh, on a one-to-one -one basis. And it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to share the gospel with those students. Um, international students in particular are really eager to talk about things, whereas British students tend to be a little bit more reserved or cautious when it comes to discussing spiritual matters. Um, but the opportunities that are available with international students is enormous. But that's the work. Pray that um, God would continue to bring lots of students along. We've got maybe about 30 students that come along uh, on a Wednesday evening. And it's great to have that opportunity. Pray that um, the purity of the witness would be maintained. Sometimes other more liberal groups come along and try to join in. And that then poses its own set of problems about how to actually safeguard the witness of the gospel in those kinds of contexts. Because we don't want to shut people out, but at the same time we want to represent a faithful Christian te testimony. So you can pray for that as well. So that's just a bit of introduction, things to pray about, uh, but now we're going to turn to Isaiah, and we've got quite a lot to get through, so make sure you've got your Bibles open at the prophecy of Isaiah. If you don't have one, there's Bibles at the back you can grab, and we are coming to the end of our, our short series exploring Christ in the Old Testament. And tonight, of course, I want to think about Christ in the prophecy of Isaiah. But before we do that, let's uh, think of a recap. Because as Christians, we're told to read the Bible, the whole of the Bible, looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that because he told us to read that, the Bible that way. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus came to his disciples and he chided them for being slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken he began with Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so if we read the Bible and we don't see the Lord Jesus Christ spoken about, then we're missing the point and we fall under the rebuke of the Lord Jesus who would say to us that actually we're not reading it the way that he wants us to read it. And so if we read the Bible with the Lord Jesus in mind, what we've seen is it all starts at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve had sinned. God said in his promise to them that he would send the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. 
And ever after that in the Bible, that promise just gets expanded on. And so we saw that when we come to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 17, God makes this promise again to Abraham, and he promises Abraham a seed. And so we discover that that seed of the woman is going to be the seed of Abraham. And we trace that line through to the end of Genesis, and we get to Judah, and we see that that seed is going to be from the royal line of Judah. Then we come to 2 Samuel 7. And God comes and he makes a covenant with King David and he says the seed is going to be the seed of David. And that's going to be the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that then leads David to, to sing about this and write songs that are, that are full of Christ in the Psalter as David thinks both in terms of direct predictions and in terms of pictures about what this coming one is going to be like. And so the unfolding, pat, the unfolding plan of God begins at the very start of our Bible in Genesis and works itself out through the, the covenants that God makes with his people. And the basic storyline, the plot of what God is doing is that God is re-establishing his reign over the world. Because the problem in Genesis is that God took Adam and Eve, he placed him in the garden, he told him to rule over creation as his, as his vice regents, as his uh, kings under his authority, they were to rule over the world and to maintain dominion over it. But what they did was they didn't listen to God. They rebelled against God and introduced frustration and sin into the world. And what God then does in Genesis chapter 3 and ever after that is work out his pledge that he is going to reestablish his reign over the world. And so what we get is pictures and direct promises that God is going to bring his king who's going to establish his reign over the world. And so we turn then to one aspect of Christ in the Old Testament that we haven't really considered yet, and this is Christ in the prophets. We've looked at Christ in, in the law, books like Genesis. We've looked at Christ in the, the writings, the, the songs of the Psalms. But we haven't properly considered the, the prophets. And that's people like Hosea and Joel and Amos, Zechariah and Malachi and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And what prophets did was they were God's messengers that brought God's message to his people. And before the exile happened, when all of the Israelites were taken away into Babylon, uh, before the exile, there were various kings of Israel and Judah. And the prophets were God's messengers to come to these kings and tell them to live according to God's instructions. And they pointed people back to the word of God. But then after the exile, they still come to God's people and they say, look, there's not a king now, but God is going to send his king and he's going to reestablish his reign over the world. And sometimes they spoke in parables. Sometimes they composed songs. Sometimes they even acted out little dramas. Sometimes they made little models and, and demonstrated what was going to happen in sieges and so on. Uh, and sometimes they gave messages of judgment and warning. Sometimes it was messages of hope and encouragement. But through a variety of means, they communicated God's message to the people that needed to hear it. And the consistent theme of these books is that they're all looking forward to a future day in, in which God is going to put everything right, in which God is going to establish his reign. And one of the most important books then in this message of the prophets and in the Bible is the prophecy of Isaiah. And this is largely because he's written one of the largest prophetic books, 66 chapters in total, and it's thus one of the most detailed books. And in recognition of this fact, the New Testament writers quote it more than any other Old Testament book. They quote from it again and again as they recognise that what they had seen and what they had experienced in meeting the Lord Jesus Christ had actually been foretold by Isaiah. And so they start then reading the Bible and seeing actually this is what we should have been expecting. So what I'm going to do, rather than looking at lots of the prophets, because many of them are full of insight. We're going to look just specifically Isaiah and think about how Isaiah speaks of Christ. But we, before we look in detail at some of the things that Isaiah says, it's helpful to get a bigger picture of the structure of Isaiah and what his main message is. And essentially, Isaiah's main message is that God is going to bring his kingdom to reign upon this world. And then the book of Isaiah is structured into three separate parts that start to try and explain how God's going to actually do that. 
And in chapters 1 to 39, you've got the first section of Isaiah, where God explains that he is going to send his chosen king. And it's this king that he's going to send who's going to bring about his kingdom despite the unfaithfulness of the nation and despite political oppression all around them. God is going to bring his king. And that's how he's going to establish his kingdom. But then when we get to the second part, that's chapters 40 to 55, we get a change in focus. And the focus is not so much on the king as the servants. And God says, says that he is going to send his servant who is going to be faithful to him, who is going to restore his unfaithful people. Because Israel was appointed as God's servant, they were unfaithful. So God is going to send the faithful servant who's going to restore God's people. Then in chapters 56 through to 66, we discover that the one who is sent to us is God's messenger. And he brings about God's kingdom by proclaiming a message of good news about how God is approaching his people with comfort and peace and making them right with himself. Now, these three portrayals of the one that God is going to send, I'm placing them in, in watertight categories for the sake of simplicity, but that they overlap with each other, there's interplay between them. But in these three separate sections, we do get that distinct emphasis on the one that God is going to send. So, the first part of Isaiah, chapter, chapters 1 to 39, concerns the coming king. And the book opens... And you see in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord brings the indictment against his people. He wants to establish his kingdom, but his people, they are so unfaithful. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know my people do not understand. And so what the problem is, is that Israel, the nation, is sick to the core. Uh, and God has to deal with this problem of Israel's sickness. And even though they are so utterly dependent upon the Lord, they don't know it. But in spite of Israel's sickness, God is going to bring about his kingdom. And that's what we see when we come into chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah says... In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. And so here, Isaiah, he sees a vision of, of Jerusalem, Zion, as the center of the entire world. And God's reign has been brought about in this world. and The nations are streaming to, to meet with God there. They're streaming to hear the word of the Lord. And because of the Lord's reign, then peace is established throughout the world. And you look through the rest of chapter 2 and you see that wars cease. Peace is established because God is reigning. But the question for Isaiah, the question for the reader of Isaiah is, how does this come about? In the midst of all of this faith, faithlessness of Israel that you see in chapter 1, how does God bring chapter 2 about when everything is put right. And then the rest of the book then starts to form the answer to that. And so when we come to chapters 3 through to 5, God explains that what he's going to do is he's going to send a purifying judgment on the nations. God is going to judge the wicked. And then when we get to chapter 6, we discover that the ultimate guarantee that God is going to bring about his reign on earth is the fact that God is king. And so Isaiah 6, you see the wonderful vision that Isaiah sees, where he sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. That's the ultimate guarantee. But we're still left with the question of who is going to bring about God's kingdom. And then when we get to chapter 7, we are ushered into the immediate historical context of Judah at the time of Isaiah's writing. And the king at that time in Jerusalem was a chap called Ahaz. And Ahaz, he finds himself in a bit of a fix in chapter 7. Because up to the north of him, the, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Aram have banded together. And they formed a little gang and they're going to bully Jerusalem and Judah, which is the kingdom to the south. 
And this leaves Ahaz in a fix because he doesn't know what to do. He's terrified of what's going to happen. And so God sends Isaiah to give a message to Ahaz to tell Ahaz not to be afraid. If Ahaz trusts in God, God will preserve his people. God will bring about his reign. And so God calls upon Ahaz to stand firm in his faith. And Isaiah says to him that he can ask for any sign at all. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 11, ask the Lord your God Ahaz for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. You can ask for anything at all, Ahaz, in order to strengthen your faith in me. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And it sounds very spiritual and pious saying that he's not going to test the Lord. But the Lord wants to strengthen Ahaz's faith. Ahaz, who has no faith in God, is just cloaking his disbelief in God's promises with pious sounding words about how he's not going to put the Lord to the test. How often we're like that as well at times, where we disbelieve God and we cloak it in, in holy and grand-sounding words about, how oh, we, we wouldn't expect God to do that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want God to do that. And it's just really cloaking our disbelief that God's going to keep his promises. And so Isaiah the prophet then, he responds to this disbelief of Ahaz in anger. And then this gets us to the crux of where I'm going to. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 13 and Isaiah says, preaching the word of the Lord to, to Ahaz, Hear now, you house of David. That's the kingdom, the, the royal line of David. Hear now, you house of David. Is it enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So Ahaz, if you're not going to ask for a sign, the Lord's going to give you a sign. Verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And the Lord will bring in you and your people and in the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, most of us recognize these famous words uh, spoken oftentimes at Christmas services when we think about the Lord Jesus coming into the world. And, of course, um, quoted in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and, shall call his, and they shall call him Emmanuel. But how does Matthew's quotation of that fit with what's happening here? Because you read this and you think, I don't actually see how this is talking about Jesus being born so many hundreds of years after this. So let's think about what they mean to Ahaz. We see the problem for Ahaz is he didn't believe the promises of God. He didn't believe that God would actually keep his promises and bring about his kingdom. Uh, and so God sends this sign to the house of David and tells the house of David that despite their disbelief, God is actually going to do what he promised, even if, even if they don't believe it. God is going to do it. And the way they will know that God is going to keep his promises is he's going to do it in a spectacular fashion. The, the Lord is going to cause a virgin to conceive. Absolutely impossible. God is going to make that happen. And they're going to call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. And to show the power of God, this one will not be born in pomp and ceremony. He won't be born into grandeur. He's going to be born into poverty. And that's the significance of the fact that um, in verse 15 it says he's going to be eating curds and honey while he's a young child. It's the food of poverty. And that's explained in verse 17 that uh, this happens because the land is laid waste by the king of Assyria uh, and Israel and and the other nations are going to be laid waste by the king of Assyria and his destruction. This child then, who is born in the midst of this devastation, is a sign that despite Ahaz's unbelief, God will keep his promises. Despite political turmoil, despite the mess that Ahaz and his descendants are going to make of things, God will keep his promises because God will establish his kingdom by sending Emmanuel. And then we ask the question, well, how is this talking about the Lord Jesus if this is assigned to Ahaz? But I think you've got to notice the fact that it doesn't say it's directed specifically to Ahaz. It says it's directed to the house of David. 
God wants to see the Davidic family as a whole. They want, he wants them to realize that despite their unfaithfulness, he will be the faithful God who will keep his promises. And so the sign that's given is the sign of God's faithfulness to the Davidic line. And this then is confirmed in the next chapter, in chapter 8, because God then returns from thinking about the future in which God is going to give this sign of Emmanuel to what he's going to do in the immediate future for Ahaz. And the immediate sign to Ahaz is that Isaiah is going to have a son. And Isaiah is going to call his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is a really nice name. Um, And that is going to be the sign that... Well, before he's very old, before he even knows how to speak, the land that the two kings that Ahaz fears, their land will be laid waste by the king of Assyria, and that will be the immediate historical sign for Ahaz to know that God keeps his promises. And when Ahaz saw that, then he should have thought to himself, hang on, I need to trust God. I need to be in expectation of this Emmanuel son. And this Emmanuel figure actually then crops up again in chapter 8. Because we look at chapter 8, again, we see that uh, in verse 8, we we read about the king of Assyria and he comes sweeping through the nations. and He comes sweeping through Judah, destroying it in verse 8. It's going to destroy Emmanuel's land. And so this land that belongs rightfully to Emmanuel is going to be at this stage overtaken by the king of Assyria. But God's people are called called to live in hope because despite all of this destruction, God won't let everything be lost because as verse 10 says, the nations might devise their strategies, but they'll be thwarted. They might propose their plans, but it will not stand. Why? Because Emmanuel, God, is with us. But it's really chapter 9 that this figure of Emmanuel gets fleshed out in more detail. Because as the nations fall into ruin, as all hope is lost, and as empire follows empire in their crushing domination, chapter 9, verse 1, speaks a word of hope, and it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, as he judged them for their faithlessness. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. And every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment ruled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. Why? Verse 6 of chapter 9, for to us a child is born. The child promised in Isaiah 7. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Isaiah 9 doesn't use the word Emmanuel. But he's clearly talking about that same figure because he's talking about the child born. That's the the fulfillment of all of our hopes. Uh, He talks about him as the one who is the mighty God. He is God with us. And in this beautiful passage, Isaiah sees this child coming into a world of darkness and ruin and desolation. And he comes into the darkest places of the nation, Zebulun and Naphtali, clouded in darkness. And he is like a shining light dawning on the world. Galilee, oppressed, infiltrated by the nations of the world, finds itself in a place of privilege as the light dawns for the world in that place. And it's no surprise then that the Lord Jesus began his ministry then in Galilee at that time dominated by the Roman Empire and under that foreign rule, the Lord Jesus began his ministry. And the hope of Isaiah is that that child is the one who's going to break 
the burdens of oppression, who causes wars to cease, who brings about God's perfect reign. And so he heaps titles upon him to express his greatness. He is the wonderful counsellor, the one who gives advice to his people about how to live rightly. After so many years of kings leading the people wrongly, this is one who will lead them rightly. He is, not only that, he's the mighty God who comes to be in the midst of his people and walk with them. He's the everlasting father. The father of the nation was the king who cared for the nation. And so he is that fatherly king of the nation. He's the prince of peace. He doesn't lead the people uh, into conflict, but who actually binds them together and brings the, the peace and harmony that God desires for his people. And in the ruins of the Davidic house, Isaiah then says that he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. And it comes about because the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes it. Now, I could go on and describe more about the greatness of this king that we see in the rest of this section, but time won't permit. So I'm going to just reflect very quickly on what we see here before we move to the next section. The hope, of course, is that Isaiah is uh, longing for this king that's going to come. And as we've seen that this is the promise that starts in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head and that gets fleshed out and we're longing for the king that's going to come that's going to fulfill that. And this far side of Christ's coming then, Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 verse 12, that this has been fulfilled for us. He says, give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints, his holy people, in the kingdom of light because he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If we read verses like that without seeing their Old Testament background, then we've missed something very important because Paul was a Jew. Paul was uh, trained in the Old Testament scriptures and he is drawing on that Old Testament background and saying that this has now come to pass. The kingdom that was long promised has started to be fulfilled and we have been brought into it under the reign of the son whom he loves. And this is because Paul believes in what's technically known as inaugurated eschatology. That sounds very complicated, doesn't it? It basically means that Paul believes things have started even if they haven't been fulfilled yet. Paul believes that the kingdom has already begun in the same way as eternal life has already begun. In the same way that the life of the age to come has started now so that we now live in the last days promised in the Old Testament, it's already started. And we're now waiting for the full and final consummation of that. And so for Paul, we've entered into the kingdom of Emmanuel, God's son. He is God with us. And we wait for the consummation of that. And the reason why it's important to see that is because we live in a world that's full of turmoil. A world in which there is chaos all around us. We look at the rapaciousness of somebody like Vladimir Putin. Invading countries. Blowing up pipelines doing everything to try and destroy the, the comfort that the world lives in. And we think to ourselves, well, God isn't really in control, is he? Christ isn't really in control. But actually, he is. Uh, there is a human being seated on the throne of the universe. Emmanuel, God with us. We know him. His name is Jesus. And he entered into this world... And through his death and resurrection claimed the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures and now reigns. And we don't yet see everything put under his feet, as Hebrews says, but we do see Jesus. And we do believe that he will one day put all of his enemies under his feet. And we don't just know him as Isaiah knew him as a distant historical figure, but we know him as our personal saviour. We know him as Jesus, who entered into this world, who burst into Galilee 2,000 years ago to proclaim that he was bringing about God's purposes. But moving swiftly on then, we've got the first part of Isaiah, which talks about the king who has come, 
coming to bring about God's reign, to bring about God's kingdom in spite of the faithlessness of his people and in spite of the oppression of God's enemies. But the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 through to 55, presents to us the Messiah, the Christ, as the one who's going to come as God's servant who lives a life of faithfulness to God. Because the problem is that Israel has been unfaithful to God. I mean, they were called to be God's servants, but again and again they proved unfaithful. And so Isaiah chapter 42, verse 19, we get the great indictment of God against Israel. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? He's talking about the nation of Israel. And they have been unfaithful. Uh, And so God's response is to send a servant who is going to be faithful to him. Now, sometimes this makes this second part of Isaiah a little bit confusing because you read about lots of different servants and you read this unfaithful servant and that's confusing. Then you read about how God's going to turn Israel back into his faithful servant and you think, well, maybe is that the servant that God's talking about? And you read about Cyrus, the, the Persian king, who's going to be God's servant and he's going to send Israel back out of exile, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and, and he's God's servant. And and you read this section of Isaiah 40 to 55 and you think, well, whose servant, what servant is he talking about? But above all of these different servants that are legitimately servants of God, there arises one that's far greater than all of them. And you, can, you just see that from the descriptions of this servant because after chapter 40 is where God announces comfort to his people. God is going to bring good news to them. Uh, chapters uh, 40 and 41 go on to describe God's power to actually do that. He's greater than the idols. Then he, he comes to chapter 42 where he presents the one who's going to bring about his kingdom purposes. And it's, it's majestic language. He, God says, behold, look, here is my servant whom I uphold, the chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching the islands will put their hope. So this rises above all of the other servants because he is going to do what none of the other servants can do. He's going to be the one uh, in whom all of the nations put their hope. He's the hope uh, and dreams of, of everyone. And so this is the one then who is given God's spirit to be empowered by God to do exactly what God wants him to do and to be his faithful servant. He's the answer to the world's problems. But perhaps the most significant prophecy of this servant comes to us after chapter 42. And we come to chapter 52. And again, we get this wonderful portrayal of this majestic servant. And so against the backdrop of faithless Israel, the, the servant who failed to do what God had called them to do, God is going to bring about his faithful servant and he's going to bring his people back out of exile. He's going to deal with the problem of their sins and he's going to restore God's people. And so he presents his servant again in chapter 52, verse 13. And you get this this calling to our attention where God says, look, behold, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up And highly exalted. So you've got this majestic servant of the Lord. And yet it comes about in a very surprising way. So surprising that when we get to uh, chapter 53 in verse 1, Isaiah is going to say, look, who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Nobody's seen this. Nobody, Nobody can discern what God is doing. It's so surprising. And so he continues in in chapter 52, verse 14, to explain the shocking nature of the servant's mission. And I'll read it in its entirety just because it's so wonderful. Isaiah says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. 
For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. But Isaiah, he marvels that no one, no one actually grasps this. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was in him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he's suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And there's so much there that I can only comment on it very, very briefly. In this passage, he's presented as the, the servant who deals with the problem of Israel's guilt. And so in verse 8, it says, For the transgression of my people, he was punished. His suffering was unrecognized for its true nature. Verse 8 again says, Who if his generation protested? his oppression, his, his judgment he experienced. And verse 4 says that we considered him punished by God. And we saw him when we thought, well, whatever he's suffering, he must deserve it. But the result of the servant's suffering in verse 11 is that he justifies many. He puts them right. They don't deserve to be put right. But he puts them right through what he has accomplished. And finally, this suffering of the servant, which sees him cut off out of the land of the living, is followed by glorious triumph, because is it, verse 10 says that he sees his offspring. That is, he sees his children. After his death, he suddenly has children. And verse 11 says, if you follow the Dead Sea Scrolls reading, that he sees the light of life. Or even if you read it as sees the travel of his soul, the same point is made, that he's seeing triumph at the end of what he has suffered. And so perfectly does this fit the description of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the disciples in the first century couldn't get over how perfectly fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus, this passage actually was. And they turned to it again and again to describe it and say, this, is, this explains what the Lord Jesus did. It explains his suffering and what he accomplished. And so Isaiah chapter 44, or sorry, 54 and 55 build on this promise uh, by building what the servant has done, by promising that God's going to bring his people back to himself. The servant has suffered. And now the invitation goes out to all to come. And verse, uh, chapter 55, verse 1, you get this wonderful invitation. Because of what the servant has done, come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters. And you have no money, come, buy and eat. 
And as Israel is restored to this blessing, it's not just for them, but the nations experience this blessing too. In chapter 55, verse 5, Surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you don't know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Now, a few brief comments, and I know I'm going on a lot longer than I normally do, but I will get to the end. When we think about the work of the servant, we need to see it in the context of Israel's story. Because if we just jump straight from Adam to Christ, then we actually miss a whole chunk of the Bible, which is significant for the story of what God's actually doing. And the the key part of that story is that Israel was appointed to be a light to the nations. Israel was appointed to be God's servant, but they failed miserably in doing that task. And so God sends his servant, his true faithful servant, to deal with the problem of his people's sin and restore his people. And in restoring his people then, this provides the basis for blessing to the nations. And the reality then of the church in the book of Acts is that the gospel starts, as the Lord Jesus says, in Jerusalem, Samaria, and goes to the ends of the earth. And this pattern that's established in Isaiah actually gets worked out in the commission of the Lord Jesus and in the pattern of what the apostles actually do. And so these Jewish men and women travel across the Roman Empire telling people about what the Messiah has done to restore his people and how the nations can join in with that as well and actually experience the blessing that has been brought to the world through Israel's king. And of course, Romans chapter 11 explains that there's a hardening that's come upon Israel in part until the full measure of the Gentiles is actually brought in. So there's, there's more blessing to be experienced for Israel yet. But the point is that we find our place in the biblical storyline as part of Israel's story. We're not plan B, we're not second track. We're part of that one plan of God by which he is bringing blessing to the world. And so Paul fleshes this out in passages like Ephesians where he quotes Isaiah chapter 57 verse 19 and I'll come back to it. But Paul quotes Isaiah 57, 19 and says that Christ himself has come and he has preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. That is, he's preached peace to the nations far off, the Gentiles who are not part of the Jewish nation, as well as to his people Israel. And so what's being fulfilled right now is that Israel's Messiah is calling us to come and join the commonwealth of Israel, which is what Paul actually says in Ephesians 2. Now, reflecting on this brings great comfort to us because living this side of Christ's work, we live in the experience of the comfort, the peace that the servant has brought about. Israel experienced exile and terrible judgment because of her faithlessness. Now, if we were just placed back into, you know, do it all over again, how about you try to succeed where Israel failed? we would be left with an experience of judgment as well. We are no better. We would not fare any better. So God sent his faithful servants to do what they could not do and to deal with the problem of their sin and our sins. And because he has been faithful, then we experience peace, we experience forgiveness, we experience this justification that the servant provides. That doesn't mean we don't need to be faithful, but it does mean that we don't stand before God on the basis of how faithful we are, how good we can be. We stand before God on the basis of Christ's faithfulness. He went to the cross. He bore the judgment of God. And because of that, we've got the the rightness to stand before God. And that's what Isaiah's message of hope and comfort was, and that's where we take our stand. Now, last section, I'll be quicker. Chapter 56 to 66. Not only is Christ presented as the servant of the Lord, but he's presented as the messenger of the Lord. He's presented as the one who brings good news to his people. Because numerous times in Isaiah, a message of judgment has come to the people. You've been, fa- you've been unfaithful, says God, so I'm going to bring judgment on you. And sometimes those judgments are absolutely horrific. And yet, 
because of what the servant has done that's been described for us in chapters 40 to 55, there is hope. Um, And chapter 56 opens with a call to foreigners to recognize that they too can experience this salvation. Yet, as the passage goes on into chapter 57, God explains that the wicked should not presume that they have got peace with God because the wicked will face judgment. And so the only people that experience God's blessing are those described in chapter 57, verse 15, as those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. And God says that I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And it's then to those people who are broken by the, the awareness of their sinfulness that God comes through his messenger in chapter 61. And the messenger comes, bursts onto the scene and speaks in the first person voice and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And when we read this, we think, well, who's, who's speaking here? And we think, well, this is someone upon whom the spirit of the Lord is. And we think, well, where have we heard that before? Well, it's chapter 42. That's the servant in chapter 42, the, the one in whom the Lord delights, and he puts his spirit on him. And this, then, is the one who comes to us in chapter 61. And Isaiah wants, to make us, wants us to make this connection to see that this is the same person that's speaking here. And he's coming, and he's preaching this good news based upon what he's actually accomplished. He's coming saying that he has accomplished his triumph, and no longer is there a message of judgment, no longer is there a message of despair, but it's a message of freedom. It's a message of the year of the Lord's favour. He's releasing the captives who were in exile, but now God is setting them free from exile. He's bringing them home and he's approaching them with fever and mercy and instead of lament there's going to be praise and what's really remarkable about this passage is that one day in Nazareth the Lord Jesus stooped down uh, stood up rather to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah he was in the synagogue and Luke describes it in Luke chapter 4 and he reads that passage that we've read And that was unremarkable enough until he sat down. And in those days, teachers would sit down as they were teaching. And so he sat down and he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is a startling claim. Because what the Lord Jesus was saying was that he was that person. He was the messenger of the Lord come to proclaim the good news of salvation that people are no longer no longer need to be under God's judgment, but for those who are contrite and lowly in spirit, there is salvation to be had. And here he was in the midst of a people suffering under Roman oppression. And to that extent, even though they'd come back out of Babylon, were back in in the land of Israel again, in the land of Palestine again, they were still in captivity. And the Lord Jesus is coming along and saying, I'm here to set you free from that. He's there to proclaim freedom. And we've already mentioned that how Paul then picks up on this idea of Christ as the messenger of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19, where the messenger of God comes. And Paul says, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And so for Paul, the Gentiles are included in this message of peace and reconciliation that Isaiah saw as part of the end time accomplishment of the Messiah, in which Jews and Gentiles would worship God together. And so it is that even today, when we hear the word of the gospel preached, the voice that's ultimately heard is not the preacher's voice, 
But it's the voice of Christ himself coming and preaching peace to those who are far off and telling them that they too can be set free, that they too can experience his comfort, that they too can experience his forgiveness. And so, as I conclude, the portrayal of the Messiah is one of comfort to us. Because as we see him as the king that's portrayed, we see one who is in control. We see him as the one who's been given all authority by God. And as we've said, we don't yet see everything put under his feet, but we wait the day when Emmanuel will be physically present with us and he'll put all of his enemies under his feet. And we see him portrayed in that second section of Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. And despite our unfaithfulness, he was perfectly faithful, suffered for us, so as to restore us to God. And then we see him as the messenger, the one who delights to come to us and to preach a message of peace to us so that he can bring us near through his love. And it's a small wonder then that the New Testament writers can't stop quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah. So full of Christ, so detailed in its depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ was quite right to scold his disciples and say, you were so slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me. I mean, it was... It's easy for us to look back and think that they were slow to believe all that was spoken because we stand at this side of the resurrection and what what Christ accomplished. If we had been there, we would have been slow to believe it as well. But now we stand on the far side of what Christ has accomplished and we look back and we can read books like Isaiah and see how beautifully portrayed the Lord Jesus actually is. And as we see them fulfilled, we take heart because the God who worked miraculously to bring the Lord Jesus in the first place will keep his promises again and he who shall come will come and will not delay and Emmanuel will one day be with us God with us to bring us salvation apologies for taking so long I really apologize but let's close in prayer very briefly Father we thank you for how you reveal Christ to us in your word. We thank you that in all of these portrayals, our hearts are comforted as we realize all that he is to us. May we go in the strength of all that Christ is for us and delight in him day by day as we serve him until he comes. For we ask it for his sake. Amen. I'm not going to say that.